0: Seventeen-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993, here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever that anybody
1: ever saw her alive.
2: Seventeen years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Moned Bridge.
1: There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooden area here. She was, um, had come in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County.
3: At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that that she's gonna call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something. but. Uh, it just really doesn't look good
2: at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved.
3: Where are you
0: now with my heart.
2: You are listening to the second episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. In this episode, I'm going to take you back to the beginning and tell you about the family Angela was born into and whom she left behind. And the friends who adored her and whose absence left a permanent wound that you will soon discover, as I did, hasn't begun to heal. They need to know, where is Angela Freeman? Gene Freeman was Angela's hero, and he adored his oldest granddaughter with the boisterous laugh, but her disappearance in 1993 took its toll. Three months after Angela went missing, Gene fell off the back of his Smith Bakery bread truck and broke his hip. He convalesced five months, with Claudel providing constant care. His clearance to return to work, however, didn't come as expected.
4: We went to the doctor and uh, they found he had a brain tumor. Aww. So they said, well, it's coming from another part of your body. So they checked on and found he had lung cancer. So he finally went to an oncologist, and uh, they found it had gotten his lymph nodes. Aww. They wanted to do the chemo, and at first we were reluctant about it. I've heard so much about it. But then we wanted the best. So. We went ahead, and they were going to do six treatments, and he only got four. He had to go in the hospital the 1st of July, and he passed away the
2: 17th of July. On top of the emotional manifestations of Angela's loss, his physical reserve was too depleted when cancer came calling.
4: You just don't ever get over it, you you know, Like I said, he was such a good man, and she just loved him to death. She's always crawling up in his lap, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, she was. She was really a uh, good child. It's just, she had a few problems, and uh, I guess we just didn't get her help maybe in time or something. But.
2: Gene Freeman wouldn't live to find out what happened to his beloved granddaughter. Hey.
1: Press the go the
0: go
2: I devour true crime. I blame it on being a journalist, this insatiability with the dark side of life. If it bleeds, it leads, the old axiom goes. For decades I've read true crime books by authors like Ann Rule, Joe McGinnis, John Krakauer, Eric Larson, and David Grant. I watch movies based on real crime. Bernie, Monster, The Thin Blue Line, Dead Man Walking. And now, in the 21st century, I listen to podcasts. A student at the University of New Haven actually turned me on to *Serial* several years ago, and it was the perfect accompaniment for me on afternoon walks. More recently discovered investigative gems include In the Dark, Up and Vanished, Accused, and Dirty John. It was actually during a cross-country drive with my husband in late May, while listening to an episode of Up and Vanished, which follows the case of a Georgia high school teacher missing 11 years before someone was arrested and charged in connection with her death, that I decided it was time to stop just listening and actually do something, The case of Angela Freeman has never left me. Instantly, I knew this was the case I was supposed to pursue. Divine inspiration, epiphany, a sign, whatever you wanna call it, there's always a reason, even when we don't see or understand it. And I won't pretend for a second to understand why bad things have to happen to people, why Angela disappeared, most likely suffering an untimely death at age 17, along with her unborn child. But I do know, without question, that God led me to this place to share her story. For all its perceived ills, social media can be a powerful tool for positive. I remembered Angela's mother's name was Deborah from the annual news anniversary stories, so I did a quick Facebook search. It took only seconds to locate her. I shot her a private message describing who I was and my interest in her daughter's case and a very rough, at the time, idea of what I was proposing, a multi-episode podcast series on her daughter's story. Within hours, she responded positively. Deborah invited me to meet at her home on a sunny day in June. Her yard and her home were pristine. At first glance, you can tell she takes great care of what's hers. And she had prepared for my visit. She offered me a Justice for Angela photograph and showed me all the media coverage she has collected. Most of it has involved her being interviewed countless times, reliving the worst days of her life over and over to strangers with no vested interest in the outcome she so desires. The overstuffed floral patterned photo album set out before me Disguise briefly what I'm here for. It won't be a happy jaunt down memory lane I take with my new acquaintance on this early summer Mississippi Sunday. It will be a headlong trip into a family's worst nightmare. Twenty-five years of torment fill the pages, ninety-five newspaper stories, dozens of letters, cards, photographs of her blue-eyed girl as she was then, forever young at seventeen. I'm the reporter, I can't cry, but it doesn't take long to have to fight to keep dry eyes. Deborah Freeman has moved a little over an hour away from the town Angela and Angela's brother Nicholas grew up in. She had to leave about a dozen years ago, when she finally had a nervous breakdown from the agonizing grief and unanswered questions, guilt, and blame she laid at her feet for so long. She still has moments, understandably, but she has learned to rely on God for her strength, as she has far surpassed the number of years without Angela than she had with her. Nothing illustrated just how far she had come than when she told me, even more than justice, she wants the person who took her daughter to ask for God's forgiveness. Why do you think it's taken so long and still, we're close, but we're not there? It's the
1: way the investigation was held. It was the way. It... And, I, you know, I'm not saying, I think that. And another thing, I think God is dealing with him to get him to come forth, No, know, to, to come on, mm-hmm. to get this over. Mm-hmm. And he keeps fighting him. Yeah. He keeps fighting him, keeps turning away. You can't hide it forever. But if God gets ready to show yeah. it, he's going to show it. And I believe that. And I think it's coming to a halt. Yeah. You know he's eating him up. He's eating him up. And it's, you know, and, and I know it's not easy. And I want to tell him one day, I forgive you. I do. But I want, why he had to put us through all this?
2: Did you hear that? This woman whose daughter, nearly without a doubt killed by someone, her body never recovered, or return to her family to be buried with any kind of dignity. Not only has Zebra accepted this near certainty after so many years, but told me she is concerned about his salvation and where he will spend eternity. To be clear, I use the masculine pronoun here because odds are it was a man, not because I know without a doubt what happened to her. According to the U.S. Justice Department, from 1980 to 2008, men committed about 90% of homicides, and legally, Angela was declared dead in 2000, after she had been missing seven years, as the law allows. So while Deborah holds out a sliver of hope for a miracle, and they do happen, Elizabeth Smart, Jesse Dugard, and Michelle Berry, Amanda Knight, and Gina de Jesus, it's so rare that we all remember the handful of national news stories in which someone has returned home after six months, two years, ten. The reason we remember them is because it's literally a a one-in-a-million chance long before the 25-year mark. Deborah has resigned herself to the fact that she will probably never see her daughter in this life again. This is a hard question to ask you. When did you believe in your heart that she was probably dead? I actually have never... Or do you believe there's still a little bit of
1: a possibility? You always have that hope. You have to. Because if you just give up and you believe it's over and it's never going to be done in within, yeah. you lose yourself. I did it. Okay. I, I, I mean, it's a candle burning there. Yeah. And it, and it may not be what I particular want. I don't want to dead. Do
2: you have a little bit of a feeling that maybe she is alive somewhere and unable? You have to.
1: I, I say like, I have to. I, I, yeah. It's just a candle burning. Yeah. You want to believe, that even though it doesn't add up. Right. But then again. I still got to hold on to my strength. I guess still got to hold on. Even oh, she may not be alive. She may be dead. I still gotta have that to get her justice.
2: Deborah's journey to get to this place has been a long and painful sojourn. One that includes a very contentious divorce from the man she married just two weeks before Angela went missing, and a guilty plea to a felony charge. More about that later. When your kids are babies, you may imagine the little bumps and scrapes, heartbreaks and disappointments they may face. You never imagine them being erased from your life. You only hope their own lives are a little easier and better than the one you yourself had. Go way back. Tell me about when Angela came and told you she was pregnant and then coming to terms with that and her... Picking the name for the baby. I was not real happy. The reason why I wanted her to have a better life than what I had,
1: it was tough raising a child, you know. And she was going down the the same road I went on. Same exact one. And she told me, Mom, I want to be just like you. (laughs) Angela, it is not easy. And it's harder these days than it's going to ever, you know. So I was not... At first, I was not, I just wasn't, and I tried to talk to her, and she said, Mama, I want this baby so bad, and I already got a baby, I got a name for it, Christina, Christina Lynn, my middle name, Deborah Lynn,
2: yeah. I wonder if it was a boy. Oh,
1: she said it was going to be a girl. (laughs) (laughs) She, She had baby clothes. Oh, yeah, baby girl, yeah. I said, I'm going to, uh, one day, if you ever found them, I'm going to put them in her casket with
2: them. Deborah saw her daughter walking down the same difficult path that she herself had taken back in 1976, and she was troubled. Deborah depended so much on her parents during that time, and she knew Angela had an independent spirit that would need to be reined in to care for an infant. Deborah told me she didn't think she had always made the best choices because she was so young and she wanted so much better for her own daughter.
4: Ansel came come along in 76 and Deborah was not married. She had uh, got pregnant and then she went back to school and graduated. And then my mother lived with my late husband and I. She lived with us for... 30 oh, something years. Oh well, wow. yeah. Because my husband was such a good man, and uh, and then uh, we had to take
2: care of Angela, you know, because Deborah had to work after she got out of school. In the early days, Angela had really been more like a daughter to Gladell and Jean, who still had all five of their own children, and Angela's great grandmother in the house when Angela was born. Fortunately. Debra finished high school with the support of her parents, but Angela's father was much older and married. And while Debra knew their relationship had been a mistake, she wanted to keep her baby. Not wanting to break up his family, she says she didn't tell the man about Angela until 16 years later. I'll cover this in the next episode. You got
1: 16. You thought you were new at of all? Of course. But anyway, I ended up messing around with. You know, somebody I shouldn't have been. He was married, you know, and he should have known better too. But anyway, I got pregnant, and um, of course, I was scared to death, and right. you know, and I kept telling myself I wasn't, you know. And my mother didn't even know I was pregnant till I was like uh, almost five months, and um, and of course, it was it was hard on them. you know. You you, I hurt him. I know that. Yeah. What number of child were you? One. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That was the number. I was the oldest. And my daddy, you know, he just he wanted to go out and hurt somebody. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that passed and anyway I, I ended up I could have had an abortion, I could probably could have, you know, got a r- rid of her but right. I didn't I decided I was going to have her and you know. um and I did have her and she came out, she was beautiful. <laughs> okay. But um plus Angela had it all. You know, she had me as a mama, mm-hmm. she had my mama as a mama, and she had my grandma as a mama. So she was the first grandchild. Yes, she was of the course. first spoiled. <laughs> yes. You just don't know. I mean, if I told her no on something, somebody else was gonna tell her yes. <laughs> And there was nothing I could do because you know, I would live there with them, you know.
2: and
1: So it was tough. And Angela eat, eat it up. She
2: did. Angela Lee Freeman was born January sixteenth, 1976, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Deborah's sister, Donna Sanford, the second of her five siblings, is four years younger than Deborah. She was 13 when Angela was born and adored her little niece. That, that, during that time, you know,
0: I, I just really enjoyed having her as a, you know, a baby and enjoying her because all my brothers were, they were younger than me, but they were already up, you know, and they were little babies. And I was a girl, too, but had three younger brothers, and they were a younger sister. But anyway, when she was... I want to come she would come, and she might stay the weekend, and I got to enjoy that. So she did enjoy going to church with us about when she was younger. She was with my children, when, especially my two girls and my oldest daughter, when they were pretty young. And uh, but then, you, I mean, it's kind of hard to say because you have that space where Angela got older, and I, I didn't have that close contact even though we lived in the same area she was always you know jolly happy you know picking on you mm-hmm. she was, you know and she she could be demanding but she was always carrying on picking and carried you know joking around with people so she was she was overall she was you know always good spirit
2: after a few years deborah met and married dewey clough and then nicholas was born Though that marriage was fraught with alcoholism and abuse, and was short-lived, the scars left were permanent.
1: Um, later on, Nicholas came. He was my second child, so he was the second grandchild. Um, and um, it was different for him. And Angela was really jealous of him at first. They love each other. Mm-hmm. They did, you know. Of course, they had kids. Have their thoughts, you know, and they also say things sometimes that they don't mean to. And, right. But Angela was um, a type of person, she may have said something to you, you know, out of hateful, but then again, she'd come to you and and say, apologize. I didn't mean that, but um, that was a side of her nobody knew. Right. Right. She was very strong. You didn't push her around because what happened was um, when I got pregnant with Nicholas, of course, I was married. Okay. And his daddy was um, very abusive, and I had come to a family, you know, out of a a family that I'd never seen none of this. So when I got into it, I was like so young, and I'm like, "Is this supposed to be like this?" I've never. But he was he was 13 years older than I was, okay, and he was very jealous. I had nickels, I was 21. We went out and somebody even smiled at me. I was having an affair, you know. And so I took that for about a year and a half. But in the meantime, Angela saw stuff that she shouldn't have saw. She heard things that she shouldn't have heard. So that's where she got a lot of that when she saw that because she had never seen that until I got married. So then I got out of that marriage and I stayed single for... About 12
2: years. Still, Angela remained an active, spunky little girl. She earned a permanent scar at age 10 below her left knee from cartwheeling into the coffee table. One of Angela's closest friends throughout her life was Kim Guy, who spent many elementary school afternoons at Angela's house. Reliving the moments over the phone with me, she cried. Like several of Angela's closest friends I spoke with, Kim has suffered great emotional pain as a result of Angela's disappearance and the unanswered questions that remain. We was probably about 10, 11. I used to go to her house
0: a lot. <laughs> Aggravate the stuff for a mall. I used to be trying to fix my hair and put makeup on me. I remember so much about her. I mean, I really do. And then I remember, like, doing the dressing up. We loved to go to the skating rink. Um, I mean, we got everything normal and what, you know, pretty girls do. On <laughs> dad um, and everything. Sneaky, you know, doing stuff behind her parents' back. <laughs> but it wasn't nothing bad that bad, bad, Not until we got up to teenage years. She was always a stickler for being dressed up. I mean, always. That hair had to be done, her makeup had to be done. She always had to have, you know, nice little clothes. The only thing that really stuck out is because, I swear, she always tried to put that makeup on me, and that's
2: the that's the main thing that
0: I remember as kids.
2: Another lifelong friend is Rhonda Cromwell Waters. She and Angela made instant friends in junior high choir. They were both into music, and New Kids on the Block was their favorite. We started out in sixth grade together
0: and went, High school to get up to high school. She was my best friend. We did everything together. We went on our first dates together. We were young. We tried to sneak off the concerts together. She stayed with me a lot. She she would stay with me and I would stay with her. When me and her first met, we were at the junior high and we were both in um, choir. And that's how we met. And it it started from there. And we just bonded and we we became friends straight off. Back then, our, our music was, um, it was New Kids on the Block. That's, that was the group that we were young and crazy about. And I know it sounds bad, but we were we were wild kids back then. We stayed in trouble. Uh, we honed together. We went to the skating rink together. Um, I actually introduced her to Ed.
2: Rhonda introduced Angela to her first boyfriend, Ed Buse. Ed told me Angela was his first true love and listening to him, I could hear the innocent nostalgia in his voice. He has a habit he picked up from Angela that he does to this day.
5: I met her, I was dating her best friend when I met her. And somehow we got to talking and I just we ended up together. We were we were each of us first everything.
2: How old were you guys when you met?
0: She had two perfumes. I'll never forget them. She had, uh, it was, one of them was, uh, Debbie
5: Gibson's Electric the Another one it was Exclamation. I can't remember it like it was nothing. And, uh, her favorite song at the time, when I met, when I was with her, and she was in love with some of She loved that I uh, just my love. She loved that song. Um, she introduced me to, uh, Seasons Song. I never had Seasons salt before. And she came up with it. She came out with it. She her mom, we had it the store, Mommy, I let me try. I loved it. I've been her it ever since. We had a lot of first time. Here. It was just it was crazy. She loved watching videos. She loved music. She loved she loved watching she she loved the house.
2: told me that when he is in a store and sees one of her perfumes he has to spray it and in an instant he's lost in the fog and angela is alive and in the room even though by most accounts of the family and friends i talked to that say angela was always a headstrong firecracker of a child she made peace in the immediate aftermath of any storm she created in her mid teens she dated boys her family didn't always approve of but the love she had for her family is obvious in the cards and gifts she gave. At age fifteen, Angela wrote her grandparents a poem that her grandmother Claudel keeps on display in her living room still.
4: She started straightening up, and uh, but she was a sweet person, you know. She was very thoughtful. She had the cutest little life. and she just she thought a lot of. It. My late husband and me. What did she she call y'all? Nanny and (laughs) Papa. This is a, she wrote this for me one, for us one time. And gave it to me. (laughs) That was, made me cry. I'm going
2: to read this. This was from July, 1991. So how old was she then? S-T-A, S-T-A.
4: S-T-A. 15? Let's see, 15? She was born in
2: 76. She would have been so 15. 15. Sometimes being family means more than just smiles and good times. It means caring for, for each other and building bridges of trust. It means not being afraid to ask or answer difficult questions. It means accepting one another for what we are. It means pulling together when things get rough. Showing that love will be there no matter what. I love you, Nanny and Pawpaw. Love always. Your granddaughter, Angela Lee. Just as Angela idolized her Nanny and Pawpaw, her little brother and her cousin Melissa adored her. Melissa Sanford Griffin was about eight years younger than her first cousin, Angela. She is the younger daughter of Deborah's sister Donna, and grew up about forty-five minutes away from Angela's family in Purvis, Mississippi. So I was, I think,
0: eight or nine when she came
2: up missing. So
0: all of my memories are relatively from a younger age. Um, but um, as uh, with her being my older cousin, I just remember, you know, thinking that she was um, just that that cool big cousin, and her clothes were really. Um, again like I guess that was back in the later eighties, early nineties. Um I remember going over to her house and she would she would do our hair or do my hair. Like she crimped it with her little crimp iron and I thought that was really neat. And um she would hand down some of her clothes which were more like the stone washed, vintage, leather fringe jackets and I remember wearing that around a lot all my friends were like, Oh, that's an awesome jacket. Where'd you get it? <laughs> Oh, my big cousin Angela gave it to me. So, anyway, it was just, it was really fun. So, she was always very outgoing and, um, happy to be around when I was around her. You know, she was, um, if if she was around, I was attached to her hip and she was, you know, she was fine with that. So, which that was mostly the last Christmas that we had with her is probably what I remember the most about her. So, that would have been Christmas of 92, um. And I just, I, I remember hanging pretty tight to her, you know, and she, you know, it never, it didn't seem to bother her. She was okay with it. So um, that was a, you know, fun
2: last memory that I had with her. Nicholas was three and a half years younger than Angela, and everyone I talked to mentioned how much she adored her baby brother. Nicholas shared childhood memories of Angela one afternoon as we drove around their old stomping grounds in Pedal. So forgive the quality of this audio.
3: You know, I always wanted to go out to go outside and see my friends and stuff, you know. And for some reason Angela liked to look through this catalog and she, she always wanted me to pick out pick out something, she pick out something on this page and what do you like? Which one do you like? We get to this, this section with the laundry, and I'm like, I don't want none of this stuff. <laughs> I don't like that. She's like, you gotta pick something, I was I'll pick that, whatever. Just so I get out of the house. Huh? I do that for about ten minutes, and I go play with my friends. And see, if for some reason, she i remember that the last Christmas we had. Later in '92, I got a keyboard from year. I guess about six months after I got my guitar, so I started playing keyboard a little bit. And uh, anyway, I started writing songs. I was playing something, and Angela came in there and she said, "What is that?" And I said, "That's the song I wrote." And uh, do you show it to me? Angela wasn't a musician, she never played an instrument. For some reason, she wanted me to teach her how to play the song that I wrote. So I showed her that song, and it's always stuck in my mind, because Angela's the first person I ever showed how to play song.
2: Nicholas said Angela wasn't really interested in learning how to play an instrument, but was very interested in his music. She really loved being around people, and enjoyed skating and going to the movies with her friends. Angela liked romantic movies and loved the 1986 blockbuster hit Top Gun. Like millions of American girls in the 80s, she had celebrity crushes on Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze. One of the funniest stories Nicholas shared with me on our first of numerous conversations was about his sister's learning to drive. He actually took me out to show me the area where this happened.
3: My friend Eric wanted to stay here. Uh, we was gonna go to the uh, place of pedal to get, rent a game. You know, we like back when you rent the games and stuff. So my mom had the genius idea, since Andy was getting that age, that uh, she said she could drive us there. You know, but she comes out of the driveway, and uh, that house there wasn't there. But it was just this house. it comes out of that driveway, and going 100 miles an hour, hits that, hits that, hits that ditch right there, and it, it knocked the muffler off. And we was laughing. She was so mad at us. But yeah, 107 trailers Circle. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty funny. She didn't think it was funny. We didn't get to go play go get her games that night because I can't remember if my mom got it fixed or what. But yeah, it was pretty funny.
2: Angela's next driving fiasco wasn't quite as funny to Nicholas at the time, though. Their uncle Raymond who was just a handful of years older than Angela, often took Angela out to teach her how to drive.
3: We were riding, Raymond's letting Angela drive and she came around this corner. And she was going a little too fast. And uh, I don't, This gate wasn't here then. But we, about halfway down a hill, I'd say. <laughs> and Raymond pulled, I don't know if Raymond pulled the wheel or, or she pulled back in. But <laughs> It was pretty scary because she Angela liked the speed. So when she came around that corner, she uh, mis uh, misdirected her. Speed.
2: How fast were y'all going?
3: I don't know. You know as a kid, it was a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> I was in the back seat. Uh, I think I was in the back seat. Yeah, I don't remember what car we was driving, but uh, just I, out of all my memories as a kid, that was one of them I remember because I don't think at the time I you had to swim, so that's why I was kind of scared of the pond. But, uh, Yeah, How'd
2: y'all get the car out.
3: We never, we didn't make it into the pond. She just went off the road a little bit and was heading toward the pond, and that's that's all it took for me. Did so you I, see
2: your life flash before
3: your eyes? I didn't. It wasn't flashing, but definitely my heart was starting to uh, starting to pump a little bit. So yeah, it was just uh, one of and uh, out of all the driving, that was the one time that she uh, showed that she may need a little 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 help.
2: Everyone liked Angela, Nicholas says. Her gregarious nature just naturally drew people to her. One time that really stands out in his memory is the day they went to the water park. He didn't make any friends all day, but his sister, within 10 minutes, had made friends with a girl she had met in the wave pool. She treated everyone the same, Nicholas says. There was no judgment of people who were different. No matter what problems she may have been having at home, Angela and Nicholas were always on good terms. Even when they had the typical sibling spats, they made peace quickly.
3: Every time we, we got in an argument, the one thing I can remember is, within five, five minutes, she was in, in my room telling me she was sorry. And, uh, she always apologized for her own or temper or whatever, you know. But there was one time, I, was, I guess I was being stubborn. I said, no, I'm not going to forgive you. And she broke down and cried. And uh, I, I forgave her, but I just remember that one time where I can tell that she wanted my forgiveness. So even, even the fights always had a good end.
2: Angela was the stereotypical, I-can-pick-on-my-brother-but-no-one-else-better-do-it sibling, and apparently that extended to her brother's friends as well. Jeremy Slade and Nicholas have been friends since elementary school, and he recalls Angela as a champion of the kids like himself and others who were bullied.
5: I met them about the same time, you know, when I moved to their neighborhood, we lived in a a subdivision called Eastover, outside of Petals, a a middle class um, FHA neighborhood, you know, and, and, uh, you know, Nick was this real, real, real quiet kid, and his sister was quite the opposite, you know, she was, she didn't meet a stranger, you know, so Angela would talk to anybody. And I guess I became friends with them because I was uh, I was an insecure, immature, little chubby kid, and I got picked on by some bullies on the bus. And, you know, she stood up for me against some bullies. Y'all oh, leave them alone, you know, she chewed them out. And then she was really nice to me after that. So I was always friends with that family ever since.
2: Jeremy and Nicholas bonded over music and remain friends to this day. Oddly, Jeremy has another friend who went missing less than two years ago from the same area in Mississippi. More about this in a later episode. One of the quirky things Nicholas recalls about his sister was that she mixed ketchup and mayonnaise to dip french fries in, and neighborhood friend Melissa Austin McSwain remembered that Angela introduced her to this culinary curiosity, too.
0: I will go to her house. She would cook me french fries. That was one of the kind of the good memories that I have that she would cook french fries and she would mix mayonnaise and ketchup together. And that was the first time I'd ever had that. And I remember it, you know, it was so good. And I started, you know, eating my french fries like that. <laughs> it was one of the good memories I had of her.
2: Listening to all the sweet, normal childhood memories, one can almost forget the tragic mystery that has paused Angela's story for the last 25 years. Like normal American brothers and sisters, Angela and Nicholas always had each other's backs. Even when Deborah had to pry information out of Nicholas as Angela got older and sneakier. When Angela when, got
1: her teenager years, that was the hardest. And, you know, and she, was, she tried me. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that she was a perfect child right. because she wasn't. It was hard. Because she had got her way so through the years. And now I'm i I've got her, you know, in a place, we got a home, and I'm telling her, No, you're not gonna do this She's looking at me like, Yes, I am. It was hard. And uh, it was tough. She got to the point where she was sneaking out the window. How you know? old was she then? Uh, fourteen maybe. She had um met this guy, you know, da da da. So one night I, I one night I got up, and I, sometimes, you know, you get up and you just check your children, make sure they are in their bed. And I got up and opened the door, and Nicholas was laying there, and I opened her door, and she was gone. So I got, I went, got Nicholas, and I said, where's your sister at? I'm not supposed to tell you. You better be telling me, where is your sister at? She's going to, she snuck out, but she's going to come back, and she's going to sneak back in a minute. I said, no, you're not. You're going to lock that window right now. And you better not unlock it. I said she don't come back in this house. She don't come through the door, <laughs> and she had to.
2: Oh, I was so mad with her. Angela's teenage years grew tumultuous. Family and friends I spoke to all attest to an increasingly out of control Angela, and Deborah was eventually forced to get outside help for her wayward daughter. This is not an unusual situation many single mothers face. It's impossible to work enough to support your family and be there 24-7 to ensure your kids are minding their P's and Q's. Some children, as many of you parents can attest to, can consume every bit of patience and prayer you've got in you. So then she had just
1: got out of control. So then I um, I contacted this man. He was, I, uh, to help youth, you know, to keep them mm-hmm. under control, right. you know. So, um... He came to the house and talked and we all this stuff. And anyway, she she had to go along with it, and he talked with her and he said Look, it'll, it might help you and that and. And she seen that she was wrong, but she agreed to it. And um, she was up there for almost, I feel like it was two weeks. And then when she come in, she she was, fitting this. She was telling her proud brother how to, he she could. Stand up and lean, hit the floor, you know, and catch your arms. <laughs> I, got, I got movies of them trying to do that, especially Nicholas. But um, that's, yeah, that was funny. And when she got out of there, she had, oh, a little bit different. Not quite as bad. But, uh, but she started seeing that same guy again.
2: After Angela came back from Job Corps, Deborah started dating Bill Stewart after being single for more than a decade. For an independent, strong-willed teen like Angela, she felt like it was her versus Bill for her mother's attention and affection.
1: I stayed single for about 12 years after that. And um, I had built a house in Sunrise out there in Petal. Had it built. And... um, it was just me, Angela, and Nicholas, you know. Um, and so it was so long, you know, I didn't have a man around that Angela had got to the point where she didn't want one around. So when I did start dating somebody, it was like she was really, he, he'd try to tell her something and, he, you know, she'd come back, well, you're not my daddy. Right. You know, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah.
2: Bill was a stern disciplinarian, according to sources I spoke to. He was particular and wanted things a certain way. Several friends of the family describe him as harsh. He was 15 years older than Deborah and set in his ways when he entered Deborah's life and the lives of her teenage children, who hadn't had a father figure since they were youngsters. Realizing her mother was getting serious about marrying Bill, Angela turned inward, and as Christmas 1992 approached, Angela was getting serious herself with a young man six years older than she, Stephen Lindsay. So serious, in fact, that the 16 year old brought him for family Christmas. The last one she would have in Lafayette, Louisiana at her grandparents' home. Yeah.
0: Um, I think we were at mama's that years so when they still lived in Louisiana was her. I believe that was the last one that I remember. Um, uh, you know, she she seemed, you know, happy. I didn't pick up that, you know, anything was wrong. And, um, you know,
2: just a we had an enjoyable holiday season. Unbeknownst to them, this would be the last Christmas the entire family would ever spend together. As the Freeman family members were wrapping presents and hiding them under the tree, Angela, had begun hiding more and more secrets of her own. Next time on Telling Lives, we'll look at how things changed in Angela's life in 1993, leading up to that fateful day in September. Brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, associate producer Jerry Clark, audio editor Andrew Vance Miller, audio transcriptionist Lance Christian, research assistants Rhett Williams, Marilyn Barfoot, Trinity Baugh, and Abigail Jones, photographers Abigail Jones and Grace Miller, original music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke 817.